This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. Just a quick note before we get started. We recorded this episode on Tuesday, which was before the riots that happened in Washington, D.C. So if our tone about the new year and the fresh year ahead seems a little optimistic, given everything that's happened this week, that's why. We still think it's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. A happy new year, everybody. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We made it, you guys. I had a good break. Did you guys have a good break? Yeah. I mean, I was stressed out about stuff still to come, politically speaking. (laughs) Um, But it was, you know, symbolically nice to watch the... uh, the year tick forward. And um, I actually did get to watch a lot of good things. I mean, mostly below deck Mediterranean, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. a fantastic. I mean, it's the best thing that's ever been made. But um, <laughs> Steven Soderbergh some, also watched a lot of below deck. I was just looking at his uh, guide, his like list from last year. I was just going to say, so I, after reading that this morning, I felt in very good company and a little bit less guilty for not like, <laughs> you know, rewatching or for the first time, some classic movies or anything. Yeah, I took a big break from watching stuff. Uh, I like watched Mandalorian and like not much else, and it, it was great. Honestly, great time. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's one side effect for our weird jobs, uh, you know, benefit of this weird award season is that between the weird award season and the Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour not being immediately when we come back, I had the clearest break I think I've ever had at the end of the year. So. That's fantastic. Um, Well, speaking of weird award season, we're going to talk about the weird award season since it's now 2021. The Oscars are this year um, and there are awards ahead of us, but uh, it might help to give some clarity on what is actually coming. And then we have two interviews at the end of this episode. That's how you can tell that award season is starting, is that we're getting a lot more interviews. Uh, we've got my conversation with Amanda Seyfried, the star of Mank, and Joanna's conversation with Jonathan Majors, the star of The Five Bloods and Lovecraft Country. But first, Joanna, a lot of people did watch a lot of stuff over the break, and they watched Bridgerton. That seemed to be kind of the runaway thing that was not Wonder Woman or Soul that people were tweeting about. 
And I kind of wanted you to just, I don't don't explain the whole thing to me, but you do seem like the Bridgerton expert around here. Do you want to maybe sell me on Bridgerton? As someone who is a Jane Austen fan and a big skeptic about people who try to take on this period and do it badly, you seem to have embraced Bridgerton. I feel very vindicated, by the way, because everyone's like, I wonder what people are going to be watching. I was like, it's Bridgerton, guys. Come on. It's got it all. <laughs> Sex, intrigue. Uh, yeah, so this is, um, you know, this is Shauna Rhimes. I think we talked about it a little bit at the end of last year, but this is Shauna Rhimes' like, first show out of her big Netflix deal that she made. And I think it's such a brilliant move because what she's decided to do, she's not the showrunner on the show, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to give her credit and Shondaland in general credit. But what they've decided to do here is adapt uh, the Bridgerton books, which is a series of, I think it's nine, maybe eight books by Julia Quinn romance novels. That It's an interlocking sort of, I've been calling it like sexy MCU uh, book franchise. <laughs> where you would, you would do that. <laughs> it's set, it's, it's a Regency romance. It's a romance novel. These are romance novels. It's a Regency romance, which means it's set in the era of Jane Austen. There's a huge, there's a fine tradition of Regency romance novels. And uh, this one centers on a, a family, the Bridgerton family, and they've got, uh, I think it's eight kids. And so there's a book sort of following each kid. Kid. Um, and that's, I think that's a really smart way to write a book. And I think it's a really smart way to pitch a TV show. So this first one is is centered on, you know, it's an adaptation of the first book, The Duke and I, centers on Daphne, who's the eldest girl. But, oh, my God, this is a really helpful thing. The Bridgerton kids are named in alphabetical order. So she's the fourth oh. kid, <laughs> but the eldest girl. And the, the, uh, the book is titled The Duke and I. And so it's about her uh, romance with this duke. Bridgerton got a lot of attention for its, uh, you know, race-blind casting of this era, which is not how uh, Regency romances or Regency films are often cast. Um, and so that's something that people have been really excited about and something I think works really well uh, in the show. And, um, and I think it's just a really smart move because oftentimes... This kind of storytelling, which is unabashedly like feminine and sexual, has been sort of relegated to the shadows. I was talking about all this a lot at the end of last year in terms of like romance novels are hugely popular, but like women for so long felt like, the, you know, my grandma used to read them with like a slipcover over them so that mm. like nobody knew what she was reading. Or I was talking to another woman who said her mom used to like, f like shelve them behind other books on her bookshelf. It was this like secret. And then like Kindles came along and then women didn't have to worry about that anymore. But like, you know, it's, it's a predominantly female kind of storytelling that has been um, that women have been shamed for for a really long time. And the fact that Shonda Rhimes and her cohort are like, no, don't be ashamed. This is something you love and it's great and it deserves a big splashy, you know, Netflix production. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot to love in Bridgerton. I had a really good time with it. Daphne, I think, is like the drippiest of all the Bridgerton kids. So I'm excited even more so for like future seasons that aren't centered so it's, on her. It, it's they're centered on different kids, but it's different plots, right? Like it'll be a different story centered on. Yeah, yeah it won't be. Kids. It won't be the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this plot. It's just <laughs> I, I suspect I haven't. I've read the first book. I haven't read all the books, but I suspect it's like how each of these kids. You know, winds. I say kids. Uh, each of these, you know, siblings uh, winds up married off. It would be my suspicion. 
as to how this is all going to go. Though there appears to be one gay one, so we'll see how that uh, works out for them. But um, yeah, so so there's a lot to love. Uh, the the piece that I wrote that you that I think Katie you were poking at and got uh, some notice over the break has to do with one sex scene that is adapted from the book that I think was a mistake uh, the way that they adapted it. But there's a lot of other updates from the book. The book was written 20 years ago. There's a lot of other updates from the book that work much better. Um, I, the book series itself is much better. This it's a it's a consent issue, and the book series itself is much better with that issue going forward. Uh, I've been told this is the only real incident of it in the series. So anyway, I, I just think it's it's fun that it was a hit. It's fun that I saw a lot of men watching it, mm -hmm. uh, talk to a lot of men who really loved it. So like it, you know, to me this feels like this feels like the wider pop culture like embracing Harry Styles or something. It's like some sort of like vindication for women and the things that women like, and other people being like, oh hey, this is good. I can enjoy this too, and you don't have to be ashamed of loving uh, Regency romances, bodice rippers, etc. So, Way to accuse Richard of not paying attention to Richard uh, to Harry Styles until now, because uh, he, I know, no, Richard's been on the beat. I know, I know that he has been. Uh, I have also been on the Jonathan Bailey beat for a long time, ever mm -hmm. since I think Broadchurch. I was supposed to see him in the um, gender swapped version of Company that was going to be on Broadway, and then everything closed. In March, um, I have not watched much of Bridgerton yet, but I do think it's interesting from a like a more like industry standpoint that this is Shonda Rhimes's first show in her huge deal with Netflix, and it's doing very well in a way that their other huge deal with Ryan Murphy has not done quite as well. Yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, he, Murphy has many more titles already kind of filed in that deal with Netflix than Rhimes does, but like I would say, um, she has won at least one round of this, you know, imagined battle. Imaginary battle, <laughs> yeah. Although, hold your, hold your breath until the Golden Globe nominations come out for prom, so we'll, so we'll see how that pans right. out. We'll get there. But, I mean, Shonda Rhimes has always been so smart at this, and Shondaland in general, so smart at taking the things that, you know, often, once again, women have been told that isn't mainstream and making it mainstream. And so I really applaud her for doing that uh, with this. It's a really fun, you know, there's also a really fun, like, gossip girl angle where there's this gossip columnist figure, mysterious figure named Lady Whistledown, voiced by Julie Andrews, but not, yes. but, but it's like one of another character is actually Lady Whistledown. And so there's this fun, just like really cheeky, dry uh, narration that runs through with, with Julie Andrews' beautiful voice, which lends like an extra layer of, of gravitas to everything, right? So yeah, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan and it's it's been doing really well, which hopefully means we'll get eight more seasons of it. We'll Man. be Bridgetoning uh, into like the next two presidential terms yeah and so i don't know I, i'm 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 happy for for shonda and i'm i'm happy to hope that the show does even better than it did this season in terms of like that one issue that i mentioned so yeah well, I look forward to escaping into Bridgerton. I'm still finishing uh, The Flight Attendant, so I'm I'm stuck in 2020, um, but I feel like Bridgerton might be my next escape pod for, I don't know, whatever whatever's to come in, in the January and February. It's fun. Like, you mentioned Katie trying to sort of half-watch the first episode and not that not being very successful. Yeah, you can't do it. I think you need to really focus right at the beginning, and then you can just sort of, like, 
then it can be kind of background light watching. You just have to get all the characters straight first, and then you yeah. can just sort of like background watch it a little bit if you want to. So I saw you yeah. tweet that you had a hard time telling the Bridgerton boys apart. So everyone did. <laughs> <laughs> they look all exactly alike. They do. They do. I had to come up with nicknames. Those people I know did. It's yeah, it's uh, it, like I'm usually not a fan of the kind of lazy like uh, I don't know. I think of it almost as like the Guy Ritchie sort of like introduces the cast and put the name on the on the screen as you do but I'm like maybe in the case of Bridgerton they, they should have done that I remember when I first started watching Game of Thrones we downloaded and printed out like a family tree diagram uh, for all the characters and that really helped so maybe, maybe I, mean, I, I was gonna say something about that like the fact that I had trouble with the with the three brothers uh it's really good casting I think they're they they were a little sloppy in introducing them at the beginning but also I was like, listen, I did this for years in Game of Thrones. So the fact that I had trouble like tells you that, you know, it's it's a it's a little stumbling block for some people. But it's a it's a low it's a low hurdle to clear and once you're there you're you'll have fun. Uh so yeah, Bridgerton. Yeah. Uh get on board. So we're going to jump back into award season proper since, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're in 2021. Um, and maybe a way to do it is just to note that there are still new movies to come out. Like, I think we all still have some kind of sense that, like, the end of the year is the end of the uh, season. But there's a good bit of stuff to come, um, including Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the uh, the, uh, the HBO Max film that was a Warner Brothers film that doesn't technically have a date yet. A couple other things. Um, and then this week, Pieces of a Woman is also coming to Netflix. Um, I, I don't know if you should watch Bridgerton first. So you can like relax yourself before watching Pieces of a Woman. I think if you've heard anything about it at this point, it's that it has a incredibly harrowing uh, opening scene of a childbirth gone terribly wrong. I like this movie when I saw it at Toronto. I think the uh, kind of powerhouse opening sequence is the strongest point of it. And But it's got this really great performance in the middle of it from Vanessa Kirby, who you know as Princess Margaret from The Crown, who I think I've been tipping as a Best Actress contender since I saw it back then. Um Richard, I don't know, like, how do we feel about telling people to see Pieces of a Woman? Because I think it's worth seeing, but it is a, it's, it's a tough one. It's worth seeing. Um, I think that it, it's, wor- it's worth seeing for Vanessa Kirby. You know, yeah. um, she's so incredible in it. And this was part of a really big fall festival season that she had between an in-person Venice and remote Toronto or digital Toronto. Um, she had several movies at the festivals and got pretty much great reviews for all of them. This being the most sterling example, it's going to be on Netflix. It's going to be widely accessible. She's going to get nominated for an Oscar for it, I'm pretty sure. Um, And that would be because not only is she great in the movie, but, you know, her career has been really gaining momentum over the past, I would say, five years or so. So, yes, it's worth watching it for that, both for just admiring the the technical, you know, achievement of what she does and what that opening scene does. But also if you want to have a good sense of everyone in the Oscar race, um, it's an important one. That said... There are other major stumbling blocks. You know, the difficulty of the first scene is one thing. The way the movie, for me, kind of falls apart is another uh, after that scene. But I think most pertinently is the Shia LaBeouf of it all. Yeah, um, that's that That was not as much of a factor when we saw it at Toronto. It was not. Uh, the allegations got, about him had not come out. So, yeah, that I'm, I'm not really sure how they're going to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, they basically have taken him out of all of the marketing that I've seen. Um, Mm -hmm. They've been running a lot of Twitter ads for it. At least I'm getting served a lot of Twitter ads for it. And they just do not mention him at all. They mentioned Kirby and Ellen Burstyn, who Uh I guess could be considered a dark horse candidate for Best Supporting Actress. But I don't see that happening, really. I think it's really the Kirby show. But I think that's an interesting thing to to look at yet again is we have a movie with a great performance by a female actor that could get a lot of awards attention for that performance, but the rest of the movie won't, which has been a common 
refrain for best actress contenders. Mm -hmm. Um, In this isolated case, I kind of think that Kirby is better than the movie. So I think it's kind of okay. But um, yeah, I think she's definitely on the short list of, of, of potential nominees. Yeah, I mean, Shia LaBeouf, I don't think, was going to be a contender for this movie even before um, the allegations about him came out. But I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, where where that story fits in with, like, previous Oscar races. Like, we've had, like, you know, there's been allegations against Casey Affleck the year that he was running for Best Actor. Like, the, these things tend to come up time and time again. This might be one of the most serious versions of it. But I think for Pieces of Woman, they can kind of uh, excise him as much from the campaign as possible. And, you know, it's not—none of that is Vanessa Kirby's fault. So I, I, you you hope that doesn't kind of reflect back on her. I did see someone joking about um, Netflix uh, CGIing Christopher Plummer into it. Um, <laughs> I think it's too late for that, unfortunately. Although um, you know he could do it, he could pull that off. If Julie yeah. Andrews is Lady Whistledown, then bring Christopher Plummer in and be a simple woman. Exactly. I think another thing hampering it, you know, is they did they do a qualifying run? For, I you know, would guess so. It's yeah, so I'm, hard to know. I'm trying to remember. If she got votes at New York Film Critics Circle, I'm voting for the National Society of Film Critics Awards uh, this coming Mm -hmm. weekend. So maybe we'll see her name pop up there. But it's possible that because it's coming out in 2021 that it wasn't eligible for certain uh, prizes yet. So maybe that's why she hasn't shown up in in winner's list yet. But um, but again, you know, she she won at Venice. And I just yeah, I I, I think that um, we're going to be hearing a lot from her. Uh, in the coming weeks and or a lot about her just as we will, you know, about Carrie Mulligan now that her film is finally coming out and and Mm -hmm. everything like that. So I think the horse race kind of, even though we've been talking about it for months, really has only just started now. Yeah. The best actress race might be the most interesting of the four acting races, kind of saying this off the top of my head, because I think we we were all agreeing when we talked about Ma Rainey that Chadwick Boseman is like almost a slam dunk uh, winner and best actor. Um, But, you know, Frances McDormand has this incredibly strong performance in Nomadland, but she won three years ago and this would be her third Oscar. So it makes it a tricky like if she hadn't won for three billboards, I think she would be a really obvious winner. But that complicates it. And I'm not really sure how that's going to play out. It complicates it, as does Sidney Flanagan winning at New York Film Critics and yeah. Boston Society of Film Critics. That's a name that like has been around for almost a year now. That movie premiered. It's never rarely, sometimes always her movie premiered at Sundance. So I don't know. Is that just like a critical darling kind of movie because it's just a first time acting performance? Like, But performances like that have gotten Oscar attention in the past, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think she's in there and obviously Carrie Coon for The Nest, who we've had on the show, although... I don't know. I think her prospects are a little dimmer than some just because it's a tiny little movie. But yeah, it's a really interesting category, one that reflects a a year that actually in in performance that was actually a lot richer and uh, more varied than uh, kind of the the doom and gloom of the overall (laughs) movie industry would seem to suggest. Yeah. Uh, Also, I rewatched Fargo right before Christmas and man. Christmas Adorn is so good in Fargo. She's pretty good. She's pretty good in that movie. Yeah. Real hot, yeah. hot take, um, Katie. Real hot take there. Uh, but I hadn't seen it since I was in the high school. I think so. That was a uh, that was a fantastic revisit. Oh, I also forgot that Viola Davis is competing in Best Actress for Ma Rainey. So it's that's so a major interesting. There. The narrative ebbs and flows of the season are so different uh, than what we usually get. And Vanessa Kirby just came in so hot earlier this like last year, right? Yeah. And uh, and that happens sometimes, but usually. Or at least with Best Actress, I feel like those narratives really, like, 
stay steady. And with Vanessa Kirby, it really has seemed to ebb a bit, um, not to detract from her performance, but it has seemed to ebb a bit, at least in the conversation. And I was surprised to see, maybe that's just like my curated Twitter feed, but uh, the how how much people caught into Promising Young Woman uh, over the break. And it isn't even a, as widely available or widely available at all. It's, I don't think it's on streaming yet. Um, yeah, I don't think so. So, but a lot of, uh, I saw a lot of like other filmmakers talking about it, stuff like that, which I was pleasantly surprised by. Because that, that's a movie that I think is like a little bumpy, but I think Carrie Mulligan's performance is so good in it. So Yeah, and it's an exciting movie to get behind because Emerald Fennell's voice is so strong. Yeah. Um, and like you you want to be on her team as to see what she does next. And Carrie Mulligan has had, you know, she got her first Oscar nomination 10 years ago and she's done some interesting work since then, but also has been like kind of flown under the radar more than she maybe should have. So it feels like this almost a redemption arc for her in this movie. Those are two good stories to, to promote. Yeah, I, I rewatched it over the break. And I think like you, Joanna, still found the film a little wobbly, but um, but she's undeniable in the movie. Yeah. And I could really see her. I mean, it's such a strange thing because it's like out in theaters, but it won't. Be, and But it's going to be such a talked about movie when it's finally available. But like, I guess it's on demand in February or something. Which is when Oscar nomination yes. voting happens. I thought it was this month. I thought it was is soon. It this month? I thought it was one of those like two week windows um, that they were doing. Anyway, I thought it was like the 14th or something like that, that it was available. But I know that some people were questioning like the the big push around it in December when it wasn't widely available in December. Yeah, it's so hard to know. These I days. wouldn't even want, you know, to encourage someone to go see it in a theater right now, given like the state of the of the virus. But I but I am excited to encourage people to watch it on streaming when it when it hits. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, with that and with Vanessa Kirby also, it seems smart to have taken a big pause. Like Promising Young Woman premiered at Sundance and kind of went dark for a long time. And now it's roaring back. And same with Pieces of a Woman. Like, take your buzz when you have it, you know, go away for a little while and then get people excited about you all over again. Um, well, we should talk about the race that is coming out. We're talk- we keep talking about the narratives and the Oscars remain many months away. And it's actually going to be a while before, like, award shows, quote-unquote, whatever those look like, start. Um, this month, there's going to be a bunch of critics' awards coming through. Like, Richard, you mentioned the National Society of Film Critics, a whole bunch of regional ones. Um, the Gotham Awards are on the 11th. I assume there's no in-person component for that. Richard, you might know better than I do. They're doing a virtual thing. It's, yeah. I, which yeah. I got invited to, which is very nice. But I, oh, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't involve getting dressed up and having free drinks with in going with to friends, you know. Cipriani. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that will be interesting because the Gotham, I mean, the Gotham's always skew a lot smaller and, you know, more um, kind of independent than the Oscars themselves. But that'll be interesting to at least have someone win an award. And then in the middle of the month, the SAG Award and Golden Globe nomination voting begins. So that's when you'll probably see a flurry of campaigning. Uh, we may have more interviews to write on this show itself. The Indie Spirit Award nominations come on January 26th. The NBRs come on the same day. And then finally, on uh, February 3rd is the Golden Globe nominations. February 4th is the SAG nominations. So it's going to be another month before we have any real sense of what anyone besides the critics is going for. That's a long time. Yeah, it's a really long time. And 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 there's more to come in terms of uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and Cherry, this movie with Tom Holland, directed by the Russo brothers that I know mm-hmm. is getting a big push. Um, uh, the movie with Malcolm Andrew, and Marie on Netflix with Malcolm Zendaya Marie, and, and Johnny Washington. Day, Billy Holiday movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I think News of the World could start to get more momentum now, you know, once more people get to see it, even though it's technically out. Yeah. One Night Miami is is out next week on Amazon. That's an interesting one to watch. Yeah. So we're really like we have our established players. It'll just be interesting to see, you know, 
if they can hold the line, so to speak, <laughs> and and yeah. fend off all of these other movies um, that have yet to come and have have not been blessed with critical awards because they didn't qualify or whatever, um, but are very much eligible for Oscars. And then we have, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the weirdness of Sundance movies being eligible for this year's Oscars if they yeah. have a release <laughs> scheduled. Yeah. No, yeah. Sundance is coming in the middle of all of that. It yeah. starts uh, February or uh, January 28th. So um, I, I would be very interested to see if anyone really tries to make that leap it seems like a it's worth a shot right i mean why not you know i think i think that's often one of the uh hand-wringing worries about sundance that, that doesn't often pan out sundance tends to do very well at the oscars but um that like oh it's just too long it's a you know it's over it's over a year away like people are going to forget about these movies again that doesn't that oftentimes that doesn't happen but now yeah. it's like well if you're worried about that then here just like say you always had a release scheduled for february 1st yeah and um and there you go yeah um, we should also talk a little bit about this. You know, feels like ancient news since it broke right before the holiday. But the Golden Globes qualifications uh, got a little wonky. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> coming in February. <laughs> yeah. Minari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Well, yeah. Minari is one that like it feels like a lot of people have seen because it's been at a bunch of festivals, including Sundance a year ago. Um, but yeah, that one is uh, qualifying at the Golden Globes only as foreign language film, uh, which is wild. It's an American movie. This I has would... happened before. Sorry. Go ahead, Joanna. I mean, I think wild is like a really diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> uh, sure. Please, please expand on that. Yeah, I, I think as someone pointed out that the amount of inglorious bastards that's in a different language, like percentage wise, and how, you know, the Golden Globes had no issue with that. But Minari, which, uh, yes, uh, takes place, a lot of it does not take place in English, is such an American, like, that's the whole point of it, is such an American story, and it was American-made. Yeah. And for it to be shunted into that category the way that The Farewell was feels so racial and really kind of disgusting, honestly. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty head up about it. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people are, too. So, yeah, no, in like the Golden Globes, like in some ways are kind of a made up and silly awards process and they do weird things all the time. But this one feels like it has so many broader implications than like, oh, you can't compete in the supporting actress category. Like it, it means a lot more and I think feels really personal for a lot of people um, in the same way that Minari the film feels really personal to a lot of people. Like you can see why it, why it cuts deep. And I, a lot of people, when I was sort of tweeting angrily about it, a lot of people were like, oh, well, bear in mind, this is the HFPA and they do, you know, X, Y, Z silly things over the years. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't change the fact that the Golden Globes are, you know, <laughs> this is a huge award. Like, you could say what you want about the HFPA, but like the, the Golden Globes are a huge award ceremony and it matters when yeah. they make decisions like this. And, and so I don't think you can just sort of like brush it aside because they've made bad decisions in the past, you know? Yeah, the Golden Globes are scheduled to take place at the end of February. And I think maybe a month ago, I would have hoped that we could get some kind of like in-person version of them as kind of a like return to normalcy. But the way things are in Los Angeles right now, that maybe feels unlikely. But it does feel like they might be more important than usual because we've had such a lack of like red carpets and Santa Barbara Film Festival and all this stuff, which makes the Minari thing even more frustrating, I think. Sorry, Rich, I didn't mean to cut you off if you had something to say. About no, I, I just, I mean, I think you kind of already addressed it with like the weirdness of the HPF, HFPA. And, you know, we talk about it every year. It's a group of 80 something people who, you know, kind of only answer to themselves. It's it's a it's a bit weird that they have all this outsized power in uh, the, you know, the film industry real or a certain component of the film industry. But, yeah, they just have this rigid rule about 
English language, you know, which is odd coming from foreign correspondents mm-hmm. um, from non-English speaking countries. But um, I guess that's kind of the point is that these are non-Americans recognizing American films in English most primarily, but then also having this foreign language category. It leads to a broader discussion that the Academy has tried to address with the best international feature designation versus foreign language of how to proceed into the future with that kind of assessment. You know, yeah, we have seen foreign language films get best picture attention at the Oscars, um, especially recently. I mean, it's, it's happened for years, but like there just feels more and more of a, of a push to just fold those movies, those performances, those bits of direction and production design and everything into the broader you know, narrative and which some worry would, would, would mean that certain films don't get the attention that an international feature award at least shines briefly on, on a certain set of films. But like it increasingly seems clanging and out of step with a globalized world and, and film market and, you know, culture that, um, you know, and this is yet another, I think, um, dent in the, you know, the armor of, a, of tradition. And, um, I hope that going forward, uh, people, because, you know, it's not just about Minari, which, yes, is a very American story. So is The Farewell. So are, you know, like. Yeah. It, um, well, yeah. And that's the thing is like, this isn't even this isn't even Parasite. You know what I mean? Like, this is an American story. And like, not to this. I, I know a lot of people have invoking this on Twitter, at least. So like, not to sound boring, but like, Inglorious Bastards, only one third of that film is in English. And yeah. that competed in the main categories. And so that just feels like, well, it's it's white. You know what I mean? And. and and it just it, like it doesn't feel like a rigid rule. It feels like an arbitrary rule that they decide to deploy when they deploy it. And that I mean that I'm hoping we're not done with this conversation, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm I'm excited for more people to see Minari and sort of um, get indignant with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, and and yeah. I'm just looking back at like past Golden Globe nominees in like regular Best Picture, either comedy, musical or drama. And like burlesque is in there and that movie, none of that movie is in English. <laughs> <laughs> or any known language as far as <laughs> the language only Cher speaks as far as yeah. we know uh, I also have a lot of faith in Minari and like to have a better uh, success with the Oscars than The Farewell did I think The Farewell was really famously snubbed partly because this, the field is smaller this year so I'm hoping that it doesn't happen the way it did for The Farewell where it just like misses this really visible platform um, and, and can go get a bunch of Oscar nominations and show, show them up Go Minari Go Minari Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Okay, so we're going to start uh, sharing the interviews that we did. First up, we'll hear me talking to Amanda Seyfried, the star of Mank, who plays Marion Davies. I had a really great time talking to her about kind of connecting to this woman who was a really talented and really funny and never really got the chance to play roles that would have proven that. Um, and I think she, while being very diplomatic, can relate to that for having played a lot of bad roles as a young, pretty blonde woman and now really getting a chance to, to break out and show what she's made of. Um, and I had a great time talking to her, so let's hear that. So I wanted to start by asking just really generally, what was your relationship to Citizen Kane like before this movie came to you? I had seen it when I was like 20 and I was doing a lot of those movies, you know, I was you were doing like film, film education for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was dating somebody who showed me a bunch of movies, but my background is in, in like my, my father is obsessed with golden age cinema and he has a projector in our basement and reels of everything, 16 millimeter films that we watched growing up. And then when I was like early teens, he got his first 32 million, uh, 35 millimeter film. It was like Interview with Vampire, but everything else was black and white. I grew up with that. It was like, it's in my blood, but I, I never, it never really stuck for me. I do love movies, but I love all movies. It's not, I'm not just stuck in one era. So it's like, as much as I knew about these people, I didn't, you know? And so there was a lot of research that had to be done because I mean, of course, not a lot of people do know about what happened and like the backstory of Citizen Kane and how it was yeah. made. Of course, that's why this movie's this movie was made. It's a fascinating story. So I had the script for that research, but I didn't. The Citizen Kane, I for Marion, I also just didn't want to base anything on Susan because that was. It's not that story, you know. I mean, yeah. we all know that he was supposedly based on Marion, but they're not the same person. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I had an opportunity to prove that. Well, and learning about Marion is like so much of our cultural understanding of her is from Citizen Kane. And that's something that like you're undoing and Mank is undoing. But so I think you said you read her memoir that was like pretty surface level. So where else do you go to figure out who Marion actually is? You stay with the script. I mean, you can't get you can't get overcomplicated. It's not that helpful at the end of the day. Hmm. You're, you know, I had what six a handful of scenes uh, the script was really good, and you get a lot. Every character, I think, gets a lot from that script. Understands a lot about their character, so that's a good starting point, of course. And then you want to hear about how other people might have felt about her. I mean, there is another big biography, but that's. I mean, I really enjoyed seeing the world from her memories, mm. her recollections of her life. Like the, this, these, this book was based on interviews of hers. I took a lot from that because she, it matched a little bit with how Marion was written in the script in some ways. And also you just kind of have to throw it all away at some point and say, what's similar about us? Yeah. We have a similar essence. Is there something I can use of me paired with the things I know about you and with the story and the relationship that she has in the story with Meg? Like it's, it's totally doable. And you have to, and you have to find comfort in all of that, so you can actually perform it well. So, what commonalities did you find with Marion? We come from the same kind of, we're cut from the same cloth. I mean, I'm not a New Yorker, but I grew up in Allentown, pretty, you know, working class place, and and so did she. And you know, she had some dreams. I had some dreams, 
she got into the business quite young. I got in the business quite young and I, she maintained some kind of uh, sanity throughout. I think I did too. I tried really hard to, and I think we both really enjoy what we do. And she's extremely loyal and kind. And, and I think there's, I think there are many misunderstandings about her, of course, Mm -hmm. because of the movie and because of her relationship and being, you know, famous for being a mistress of a huge you know newspaper baron i think it's i think the fact that the most beautiful thing about her is that she really truly loved hearst and was very loyal to him for yeah. until he died which is and then she was of course a lot younger than him and nobody could really understand why she would be with this guy but they had a really good day yeah and I like how unambiguous the movie is about that too. Like it's really critical of Hearst, but it see and it and it lo- the movie is so affectionate toward Marion. It's just like yeah, they they had a thing, and we we're not here to find out what that was really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just have to trust it, and I think she trusted it. I mean, she stuck with him. For, yeah. Even when she didn't agree with him about her own life, like her own career. I mean, listen, they they were in a relationship for what 20, 20 something years. I think it was beautiful. I think she's. You know, there's a lot to get to know about her. And I, I I love finding similarities with all the characters I play. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. And it feels like, like Marion never got to play a role. This is complicated, but like, this is a, the kind of great role that any actress wants to do that Marion never got to do. Like she was so right. limited in what her options were. And I wonder if that's like, you know, you've been working for a long time. You've been offered a lot of things that you would never want to do. I wonder if you like could think about that, you know, that path where you wind up on just getting stuck playing a bunch of things that never let you show what you can really do. That's like, that was Marion's whole career. I know. I mean, Hearst was running a lot of these movies, you know, movie tone was, that was, the studio for her, you know, she, and they made tons of movies. They just like rolled them out one after yeah. the other. And from the ones I saw, she's, she's great. She's mm-hmm. hilarious. She just kills as a comedian. Like she has the comedic timing. She's wonderful to watch. She's just effervescent and like people characterize her as winsome, which I think is a perfect description of, of, of her and her energy level. And I, I think she did a lot of great fun stuff, but he kept trying to pull her away. He wanted her to be like that, that drama. He wanted to thrust her into the, you know, that genre that she just wasn't, she wasn't into. And of course, in that scene in this, in, in, in Mank, she's describing to Mank how she feels about him forcing her into these roles. And like, you know, doesn't want to be Marie Antoinette. Yeah. I, call it, I mean, all the roles that I would want to play. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, she she just wanted to have fun. She just wanted to do what she loved to do. Well, and the thing about her reputation was that she, like, and the movie shows us, that she, she was at all these parties and people loved her. Like, in a room, she was, like, she lit up everything, even if on screen people never got to see that. So, like, it's, I assume that the, those scenes that make her based on that real-life reputation that Marion had. Yeah, she, and she, she was the host, like, always the host. They mm-hmm. would just have parties all the time and she was always up for it. That, I don't I don't relate to her. <laughs> but um, who does these days? No one remembers what it's like to have a party. I know. And oh, it just seems like so much work. But that's what, that's what they, did. they had so much money, though. God knows how much work she actually put into it. And how many people, yeah, like made everything. Hundreds of people. And she'd snap her fingers and people would be there. And how wonderful. Like, it feels like it feels like my grandparents had tons of parties. Like in my in my recollection, they did. And it was always so glamorous. But maybe that's just. That's just what I remember at from a kid's point of view. But mm-hmm. 
yeah, I, it's not me, but that she did. And everybody remembers her for how, how much fun it was to be around her and how yeah. really, I think she's a really on, like she's impossible. It's, it's, she's allergic to being dishonest and says it like it is. And she's wonderful person to play who wouldn't admire that um i was thinking about the you know there's the huge dinner table scene at the end and then there's the big party in the grand room and i think you talked at some point about how like there were a lot of takes involved in that because of course it's a giant scene and i wondered if your experience making musicals had anything to do with being prepared for that because a musical is so much about being ready and hitting your mark and hitting all the beats like do those have anything in common with how those scenes are shot that's interesting yeah i think that's you're right i mean i i was comparing it to theater mm-hmm it's it's Groundhog Day. You do it every night, you know, not necessarily in the same way, hopefully. And you have a lot of preparation. You're just you're you're just ready. And I I think that because of movies these days, you don't really get a lot of time. Movies and TV, you don't get a lot of time. Budgets are smaller. You just need to get the scene nailed down to move to the next one. So like, I think big scenes like this, musical, everything you have to. You, there's so much preparation involved in getting to the first night or like, mm-hmm. the, you know, when you're on set and ready to shoot. Yeah. Just, you're just, you, you've, na- you've already nailed it. You've already figured out what you want to do. Yeah. You just have to do it a bunch of times. And yeah, it does feel like that. It's great though. Cause you're better. The more, you know, the more, you know, the lines, the more, you know, what you want to do, the more you've explored it. It's like, that's the better it is. That's why Fincher's movies are so great. Yeah. And so I don't don't want this to be too personal, but you announced that you had a baby this year. Were you pregnant at the end of filming this? I sure was. How was that? How did that work out? Was that okay? That was <laughs> <laughs> um, I was really terrified because I had been so ill mm. in the beginning of this pregnancy. And ill meaning like just flat out not able to walk because I'm so nauseous. Oh, it didn't last that long. I was very lucky, but it was bad. And it was that that last scene. And the dinner table mm-hmm. was a week and I just, um, very early mornings in the chair, you know, and that look was a, was a, that was a look, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Those eyelashes are like pounds of eyelashes. <laughs> yes. It was a, it was a lot. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, t- it was tough. It was tough, but I, you know, mind over matter. I, I never ever showed up on set and wasn't grateful that I was there. Yeah. shooting a movie adventure and these incredible actors it's just it, it was a dream come true every day and I was like how this is gonna ruin it I'm, I feel so ill but I got through it I, through I it. think about with my first pregnancy like if I was in the presence of food that I didn't want to eat like my mom made a soup with like chicken thighs in it and it grossed me out I couldn't be in the same room and I'm imagining being in a dinner table scene for a week and like oh there's so many triggers luckily all the food was fake yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it makes everything much more challenging. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but what a cool I get to tell him. And also I was, you know, I was very early on, so you couldn't really see, but they did have to pull out some of my clothes by the end. Oh, so like the costume designers knew, even if like nobody else did. I told, I was four and a half weeks pregnant. Oh, wow. That's really early. Wow. I was having a fitting because we always had fittings right before the big scenes and mm-hmm. these dresses are insane. And yeah. I was like, I just want you to know that I'm going to get super bloated. <laughs> Measurements are going to change a little bit. She's like, just let me know. Yeah. And I, you know, because that's what you do. Your second baby, you're just. <laughs> it's just all out there. Yeah. yeah you, if it's, it happens much quicker, but it's just bloating, really. It's not yeah. the baby yet. But it's, it was like, everything's, in, I, I, I was terrified about what it would mean. 
for my life on set. And it was actually fine. Well, and then for the pandemic hit, and so you've gotten, you got to be home for so much of the rest of it, which, you know, I guess blessing in disguise. It's so many things. Honestly, this whole time has has been about trying to find the silver lining. And I, I really do done a really good job with that. And I do live on a farm, which just makes it a lot easier to survive because we have space to move around without Mm -hmm. being threatened. But, but, you know, I get to be home and I get to go feed my baby. He's only, he's not, not even two months old. And I can, I can run in and, you know, be there. I'm not losing my husband to go off for him to go off and work every day. Or you too. I mean, so many people have, like, if things were normal and Mank was coming out, like you'd be at a premiere, you'd be at the AFI Awards, like all these things. Like I, my first son was seven months old, like when I went to our Oscar party and just like even seven months old, I was like, this is overwhelming. I don't know how anyone does this. And I think about that anytime a new mom is like off promoting a movie, it's crazy. It is. I mean, this is too soon. If, 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 If it were any other, I mean, I did go to Singapore two months after my daughter was born. And that was just, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. It, like you've, you, you don't know if you don't want to do it until you do it. And then you're like, okay, yeah, yeah that I, not, not working. I really thought I had to. And like, next time I'm just going to be like, you know what, if, you know, for work, if, you know, there's a, there's an equal amount of respect, you know, between us, I think I can, I'm not gonna, actually, what am I talking about? I'm not going to, I'm not going to be in this position again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a blessing in disguise. You have worked pretty consistently, I think, since you first started having kids, which I think, you know, you've, like, made some of the most interesting work that you've done. Like, was there ever – has it reframed the way that you think about your work at all about, like, you know, aside from the pandemic shutdown, like, changing the work that you do, focusing on different things? Like, do you think differently about it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've been working a long time. I've been on a lot of different sets. I've done a lot of different things, some that sucked and some, you know, that were just so life affirming, but I, I, I don't have time anymore for, you know, choosing things that could possibly not be fulfilling. Yeah. And I, you know, with this, with this opportunity, I mean, this is like a game changer for me in my career because I get to work with Fincher, but also just, I don't want to do things that aren't, that people, that this, people on set aren't as into as I am. Like I want, if hmm. I'm going to get 100%, everybody has to give 100%. Huh. Or I, I don't, you know, it'd be hard to be there and miss my children and, you know, know that I'm missing out on developments of these, they're young, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You don't want to miss out unless it's really, really, really special and slightly short-lived. Yeah. Which movies are, um, luckily. So I just have to, you know, I do less, choose more quality in terms of, you know, what I think is quality, which is just a fantastic director and a fantastic script. Yeah. I mean, I don't care if it's a big budget or a low budget. It doesn't, it's just about, you know, the quality of the thing and the quality of the project and who's involved. And I think it's, and life will be easier that way. Yeah. How does that manifest when you, when you know you're on set with people who aren't as into it as you are? What, how do you figure out that that's what's going on? Um, they don't know their lines. They don't really show up exactly when they should. They mm. give people a hard time about things that don't matter that much, or they try to, there's just a lot of things that people do when they're unhappy or they're not interested or just, you know, it's, you come across people like this all the time. Yeah. In Mank, but <laughs> I don't feel like that's the, you, you, you see the movie and you're like, that can't have been the vibe. You can't pull off something like that unless everyone yeah. is showing up, you know? Exactly. That's the thing. I, I, when I was younger, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I, I absolutely, I still have nightmares about not knowing my lines. There, there are times when I get lazy and 
Um, I mean, I'm, I gotta say, I, I, I do show up. I'm pretty professional, I think, but you know, there's lots of reasons people, people don't want to be somewhere and, and it, and it's hard. It's, it's hard when you know that you're missing out and somebody else is just, it's, I'm not, I'm not expecting everybody to be as grateful as I am, but it's just, it's tough. Um, Marion's accent is this, you know, she had this Brooklyn accent. She, she had a stutter apparently, which like wasn't as evident in her movie roles. Uh, is that, is the accent that you have in it pure Brooklyn? Is there some like movie lingo thrown into it? What's the, what's the work that goes into that? Subtle Brooklyn. <laughs> simple keep me on the keep me out in the straight and narrow i just needed something that wasn't gonna wasn't easy to fall off of i yeah accents are terrifying to me i it makes me sweat thinking about it (laughs) um i i i i yes it was subtle brooklyn accent and you know i i actually have done it before i can get easily get in and out of it even if i'm not using it and I, ha- I have an accent coach, Liz Himmelstein. She's the best. She works with everybody and she kept me on track and then she kind of let me go. Let me free. Yeah. And nobody mentioned it. I kept oh, asking. like once, once you're doing it, like no one's taught and no one's like complimenting you or mentioning it at all. No, they just don't like, I, no one said it was, if it was it, it, um, so bad that it was, uh, <laughs> you know, distracting. So that was good. And then she gave me the thumbs up after she saw the movie. So I was like, okay, good. Because you never know. You don't know yeah. how you sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's hard. I'm, I, there's no art to it. You just have to practice. What you were saying earlier about, like, not having time for things, I feel like that's why I think it's so interesting about someone who's worked as long as you have, where, like, you have your whole career in your teens and your 20s where, like, you are responsible to yourself and you can kind of fly after anything. And then you get older, the roles that you get offered change, which I think is also always really interesting. And then your priorities change, too. So it just, it reframes everything and I think it makes me excited to see what you're going to do next because it's almost like you're a different person than you were 10 years ago I, I yeah <laughs> yeah the evolution between 24 and 34 is is quite something uh-huh. yeah I don't I would never want to go back there but I definitely recognize her I just mm. I just uh I wouldn't do the same things yeah did first reform change your thinking in the same way that Mank has in terms of like the way that movie was received and like the role that you got to play that I think was also a departure from what you'd done before? I think it was just a departure in, in like the, the director, the directing. I, I, you know, that was, I remember reading that script and thinking, God, it's so weird. It's just <laughs> wonderful. And Ethan was already attached to it. And I was newly pregnant when I read it, working on something else. And I thought, because well, at that point, I was newly pregnant, so I was just really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Just like, trying no, to like, stack up work so that you could take the I time just, off. Well, no, because I didn't. I, they were both accidents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in terms of that, like, well, I was yeah. planning this. I wasn't <laughs> the plan, but it happened, and I was super thrilled about it. Yeah. But I, before, I'd just been working. Like, oh, that's cool. Let's do that. Oh, that's mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. I can jump from, from town to town, country to country. This is great. Yeah. And I was pregnant and, and reading First Reformed and I and my agent and I, she was with me. And I was like, yeah, we should, this is, I mean, it's Paul Schrader. Like, why not? Yeah. And that just ended up being, I knew it was going to be special, but you, you never know. Like the, the, the movie he'd done before that, I don't, I don't know if as many people saw that movie. So you don't, you don't know how these things are going to turn out ever. Yeah. Um, you just, read a script and if someone's interested in you 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 give it some space and time to think about it and 
and then you do it or if it's an audition you know you think about whether or not you like it enough to audition and then I just it's not going to be that easy anymore I mean I guess the, the, the easiest thing is if David Fincher is like oh I got this project I'm in I don't care who I play yeah Paul Trader, same thing Adam McGowan same thing yeah I work with these great directors there's also directors I haven't worked with that I would love to work with obviously yeah um if if they came calling I'd be like yeah I'm in just blind but but that's the thing like I've always kind of been sprinkling in these kind of challenging quote-unquote departure roles since I was young because oh yeah like you mentioned Adam McGoyan like that was like what 10 years ago but 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 those were only sprinklings like I you know what I mean like now I feel like because I am older and because I've been I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to do these like most recent movies, these two re- most recent movies that ended up being just masterpieces in my opinion. I think it does, it, it does change the, you know, the scope of my, my opportunities. I hope, I mean, you got to hope, right? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the industry is so fickle and, and, and bizarre and, and wonderful, but it's, it's, everything is really, isn't it? But, um, but I, but I was always trying somehow to prove that I can, I can go any way, mm-hmm. any role, but it doesn't, I don't know. Those movies get lost and, and you end up being known for Mamma Mia, which is beautiful. But when it comes to the industry and how they see you, maybe, I really don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine what, would, what things would be like without every single step of the way. Yeah. I regrets. I've had the most fun. Yeah, because you're never going to not have done it. So that's the path that you have. But then if you, like you say, that make being a game changer, like in a year you might be able to see this like very distinct path that it puts on. Um, And I I thought that's the best you can hope for, right? That like you did, you stand up there and you do this work that you hope everyone sees and everyone sees it. Like that's the goal always, right? Um, Well, I think it's a game changer. (laughs) I think it's really exciting. It totally is. It totally is. I was telling somebody the other day, I didn't, I didn't know that. David Fincher knew who I was or had been familiar with my work. I mean, I don't have any expectations. Yeah. So, you know, when when this script, like, was thrown into my lap, I was like, this is it's really Fincher? Okay. And, and then I had a meeting with him, and it was a go, but never expected it. And just pleasantly surprised. Fucking surprised. And, and then scared. And then... Now here we are. Did you talk to anyone who had worked with him before? To because he, you know, he's got a pretty big reputation as a director. No, no, I, I, no, I knew my friends, friends with friends of his, who like other filmmakers who just love him and swear by him, like just would do anything for him. So I, I had a lot of good feedback and good, nice ideas about who he is. I mean, I, of course, I was scared that he, that I wasn't going to be good enough. That's always like a fear because I he's a master he's someone I really look up to and I don't want to let him down that was I mean there's just a lot a lot happens you know when you when you are gonna when you know you're gonna be a part of something this special because you just know it's special just based on the fact that David Fincher is directing a movie that his father wrote yeah and about the making of the greatest Hollywood movie and of then, all time and yeah you're like oh whatever and then you <laughs> find out what the story is and you're like yeah. what yeah Thank you. This was super fun. And I loved rewatching Just Your Scenes in Mank, which is what I did this morning. So I had already seen it, but I just rewatched your scenes. So it was a good way to watch but it. It's, black and white is, it's, it's amazing. It's oh, weird. it's so beautiful. 
so beautiful. It's so rich. Anyway, and I cannot wait for my dad to see this. This is like my. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to. He might even die. <laughs> He's be very proud, I'm sure. He might actually die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. And now, Joanna, we're going to hear your conversation with Jonathan Majors. Um, do we want to reveal what he revealed to you in the very beginning of your conversation that was uh, thrilling and mildly terrifying to all of us? <laughs> we have to, uh, if only because then his goodbye won't make sense if we don't. Uh, <laughs> he listens to the show. Thank you so much. for. It's not why we interviewed him. Uh, no, we had no I idea. I didn't know until I got on the old Zoom with him that he did, but he was very kind uh, about the show and said he listens to Little Gold Men a lot. Uh, so uh, I was already a huge fan of Jonathan Majors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but now even even more so. Um, for me, the big breakout for Jonathan Majors is the last black man in San Francisco, but he's been doing stuff for a while before then. And then he just had this huge 2020 with um, To Five Bloods, uh, where he played Delroy Lindo's son um, and took center lead in uh, Lovecraft Country on HBO. And then he's also, you know, <laughs> and then he got cast in a Marvel movie. And I feel like that's the triple crown, like a big splashy HBO show, a a big awards contender Spike Lee movie and then Marvel casting all in yeah, one that's year. That's true. That's true. Um, we'll quadruple crown because the Little Golden Men interview is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, obviously. the Little Golden yeah. Obviously. Yeah. obviously. Uh, so it was really, it was lovely talking to him. He's so thoughtful. And I, I was like, tried not to be too fangirlish while I was talking to him because I, I love him so much. But that was really fun to talk to him about. And what's been interesting, and you'll hear, is sort of like he had this big year. But not in the way that anyone else has this year because he was not in like L.A. at all for any of it. So I think that's kind of an interesting narrative is the people who sort of broke big in 2020 without like being in the middle of the of well, the being usual inside circus. their homes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you'll hear exactly where he was and why. And I think that's kind of interesting, too. So, yeah, here's our interview with Jonathan Majors. I want to start by asking you, I've seen you referred to Last Black Man in San Francisco, Defy Bloods, and Lovecraft Country as a trilogy of some kind. Can you, you know, from the outside, those look like very different properties, different genres. You play very different characters in them. Can you explain why you think of them as a trilogy? I did say that. And um, <laughs> yeah, I said that. Um, yeah, I think it was specifically the a trilogy of black masculinity and kind of for myself diving into those different facets of that black masculinity. Montgomery Allen represented almost our 
um, the suppression of our masculinity as as a black man, or particularly my suppression, right? Where I grew up, how I grew up, it wasn't cool to be different in that way, you know, to think that way, to actually be in touch with your surroundings. You had to be about yourself and about your business and you know, you handle you handle you handle your stuff and, and move forward. Montgomery Island completely turned that on his head and became the opposite of that. Therefore expanding, in my opinion, the stereotypical or the day-to-day received notion of what that is. And then you have I shot Atticus I shot Atticus first because I did the pilot um, and then the Five Bloods and then went right back to Atticus. Um, so Atticus in Lovecraft Country, here we have, he physically is um, an ideal uh, within the community of what black masculinity looks like. He has the shell. Mm-hmm. He has the shell. However, the internal workings of him is very different. He's a bibliophile. He's he's actually he actually grew up quite insecure. He grew up very much beta. Uh, he grew up in a household in which he was the victim of toxic masculinity, uh, being told how to behave and how to act. And so, what we see with Atticus is the balancing act of it. And then finally, with David, I found David to be the prodigal. Right, this is the guy that actually is coming back to the father to negotiate what that masculinity is with Atticus and uh, Montgomery. They are both working outwardly, 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 the world, the war, the magic. With David, David is focused primarily on where he actually comes from, Mm. literally the man that spawned him. That is his obsession to understand that dynamic. And that's his, I mean, yes, there's the gold, there's all of this, but David traveled across the world to sit with his father and to sit at his father's knee and to understand who he is. He says, I say to Otis, uh, it feels like my last time with him. And so you have a very submissive, and in my opinion, a very submissive and a very obedient son trying to negotiate and learn from the father as complex and in some ways, you know, for, for me, politically, um, uh, uh, fucked up, no, no articulate way of saying that. Yeah. Um, father, you know, those three fellas to me felt that way. I love that connection. And I love hearing you talk about the way that you think about these characters. You went to Yale School of Drama. You've talked about the technical aspect of how you approach acting. But I'm wondering for you, when you think about your approach in general, is it how much is technical and how much is instinctual? It's deep because I feel like the more tools, the bigger the engine, you know, but the engine's the engine. And so for me, I really viewed my training. I went to North Carolina School of the Arts. It's just, it's just a thing, you know, like I did, I did attend Yale School of Drama. Uh, class 2016. But before that, um, the guys who had the, I would say, who had the really hard job was North Carolina School of the Arts, dealing with a, a delinquent from Dallas, Texas, you know, who was ready to fight and, you know, has been kicked out of school. They they had the hard job at, at NCSA. And um, it was only after the, the years of training that it kind of dawned on me. I said, oh, 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 the cheat sheet is the training is untaming. That's what you're trying to get to, right? As I said, I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I'm a military brat, right? So I, 
born in California, lived and learned life in Texas, Waco, Texas, where my grandparents from, in uh, Dallas, Texas, particularly Cedar Hill, Texas, and Duncanville, Texas. That's all I know, right? That's all I knew, right? The way we speak, the way we move, the way we view the world, that is what I was given. So I can play that. I can read, I can memorize, I can play that. What school offers is to take your natural talent and to expand it. NCSA gave me the ability to view my instrument top to bottom, right? Heaven to earth. That allowed me to play me, the guy from Texas, military brat, this, did that, and the other, blah, 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 blah. The things I, the things I get for free, right? So we say things you get for free. Right. I can play those things easily, right? And then kind of take that guy and then play him in a Shakespeare play or take that guy and play him in an August Wilson play, right? What Yale, what the tools that Yale do and did for me technically is that it took that, that raw material and allowed me to move uh, left to right. And so now I can play someone from uh, South Africa. I can play someone from uh, North London. I can play someone and I actually understand those points of view because not just understand them, but inhabit them physically. That's what training does. It allows you to do it physically. But the emotional elements of it, for me, just to be honest, the spiritual elements of it are all the same. And once you kind of crack that, 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 I think that's where training can help. It can help if there's a limitation there. I'm not speaking, you know, to standards of drama school right now. But when I began drama school, I sounded a lot different, right? You know, I sounded very much uh, colloquial. And I still sound I still sound like that, you know, if I'm, if I'm dealing with my brother, I'm dealing with, you know, homie on the street, et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's about 50-50, you know, 50-50 in preparation. And it's 100% instinct go time. You know, uh, we just wrapped um, we just wrapped this thing out here in Santa Fe uh, yesterday. Congratulations. And thank you. Because you've been out there all year, I think, right? I've been here all year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've been here all year. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your decision to stay out there. So you're filming um, Harder They Fall, right? And you're out there and then COVID hits. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, you decide to stay out there. Yeah. Um. Uh, even as production shut down, then you guys start back up and you shut down again and stuff like that. What was it like for you to be out there? Did the rest of your cast, the cast stay around or was it just you out there for this sort of hunkering down year that we've had? Uh, everyone fell away in that time. You know, I think there was a good four months where I was out here on my lonesome, me and my dogs. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was, I mean, it's twofold. I mean, it's quite romantic to think, oh, we decided to stay, but the one of the things is I had, I really had no place to go. I've been on the road for about three years now and kind of just, you know, actually before coming here, I kind of let whatever whatever remnants of, you know, a stable, you know, pay your rent, pay your mortgage kind of thing, I kind of let go, you know. So I, so I was homeless, you know. And, um, you know, I have a family. I have a mother, you know. I have a beautiful daughter, you know. But uh, she, has, she, has, she has her home. You know, I wouldn't go <laughs> live with her and her stepfather and her mom. I wouldn't do that, you know. Um, but it was also the, I, I wonder if you know the, the book Letters to a Young Poet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'll just say it for those who don't know it. Um, there's a thing about isolation in the artist, you know, and how important that is. And, you know, the, the pandemic, you know, serves us as humans, you know, 
in in very scary and and nerve-wracking ways you know and um i pray everyone stays safe and remain safe and it breaks my heart for those we've lost as a as a country and as a as a species um but everyone has to take it in their own way and and, and I, I i took it as a moment to you know really evaluate you know what's going on with me as an artist to also spend time to you know keep inviting the character i'm playing to be here and also there's a culture of filmmaking that's very uh warlike you know how and, so well you have a crew you know you have a crew and there's a certain amount of soldiers that you have there you know men and women of all different ages and they're all specialized they're all the best at what they do the hierarchy is of this it's equal in so far that everyone can do their job but then there are positions there are positions in which mm-hmm. you look to you know and you look to your director and you look to your lead to figure out how to behave you know uh, what is the culture of the set what is the culture of the movie and um i couldn't abandon chip literally because i had no place to go and two because uh i felt that staying here you know would people and then i i didn't announce that i was staying here but over time it became known that you know he didn't leave you know um and i didn't and i think you know some of the crew mentioned that to me at work and i thought huh the producers mentioned that to me at work and you know everyone says all types of shit when you rap you know everyone's very emotional you know uh, myself included and uh you know things were said and i thought oh that's good that's good you know i'm glad you feel that you know because we're in service as artists you know and if if you feel that the individual for whatever reason this individual is you know leading your film and their their dedication sets the culture. I mean, we've seen that in our country, you know, when, when leadership is fucked, we're fucked, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if it's steady, it's steady. If it's calm, it's calm. And um, yeah, that was, that's it. Is that idea of, you know, being number one on the call sheet means you have a certain sort of leadership responsibility. Is that something you've always innately understood or as something you've observed watching other people you've worked with? It's twofold. Um, it's twofold. Because I think... If I could have it my way, I would I would always have number one be number two on the call sheet. Right. Because you have to understand number one is is, as Hamlet says, the play is the thing, you know, the movie is the thing. The film is the thing, you know, and that number one on that call sheet is not serving the one sheet. No, 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 no. He or she is there to push and move and coordinate. He or she is the quarterback, you know. She's the, he, he or she is the captain of that of that crew of that yeah. that set of that ensemble. Yeah, so it's it's almost they, they should take a very subservient uh, position. Um, that also said, I've worked with some really strong, really strong actors and actresses. I mean, one of my first films was this film Out of Blue with uh, Patricia Clarkson, two Yaleys kind of going at it. You know, she was our number one. Yeah, you know, she pulled off some types all types of tricks. You know. <laughs> That, that like she did stuff like she 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 set up like a reshoot that got me like like twelve hundred dollars and I was like oh my god thank you you know <laughs> yeah. looking out you know just looking out you know or or you know the way the way I would watch uh, Matthew McConaughey you know kind of enter the set you know when we were doing White Boy Rick you know how he would move and with Matthew it was um, how I saw him move through the production office just just with this it, there's a, there's a solemnity to it you know and then also a joy. You know, that, that I really 
I really, you know, you, you can't help but pay attention. You know, yeah. uh, I watched Delroy Lindo. You know, uh, for Delroy, it was the ferocity of the of the objective of the scene. You know, uh, by any means necessary. You know, no pun intended. Spike Lee reference. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but he was gonna he was gonna get it done. And then, I guess, and then, I mean, I'm just I'm just naming fellas that I really they've kind of looked after me. You know, Christian Bale uh, and Hostiles. You know, I remember our, one of our scenes. And I took this directly, and I don't like taking shit, but I took this directly from him. He never left, he never left the set. Mind you, Hostile was my first film. So every film I made after that, I, I kind of adapted, you know, what Christian was doing, but he never left the set. And that reminded me of a theater, you know, hold the space, hold the space. And uh, he did that. And um, that takes energy. Oh, no, why would number one do this, that, and the other? No, 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 no. Number one has to do that. So, okay, so this year you've got a Spike Lee film that's like award season, in contention, et cetera. You've got an HBO show that's explosively popular. And then you get the Marvel casting news also hits this year, which is like, that's like career Yahtzee uh, in 2020, the hat trick, right? And you're experiencing, like, there's no, there's a roadmap for that. That happens to people sometimes. There's no roadmap for... How do you handle your star exploding in this way in a pandemic year, in isolation, away from Hollywood, all of that sort of thing? Are you, it sounds weird to say to be grateful for a pandemic, but, you know, when you think about your experience this year of all of this happening in a removed space, what, what, is that, what does that mean to you? I mean, I don't want to get too hippy-dippy about it, but to me, it's like, manifestation of my hope, you know, that I've kind of always, a strange thing happened to me when I was in graduate school. Uh, we went off to Bali and I did this thing and we were sitting in this spring, we were praying, uh, praying, you know, um, and um, I asked for something and you know, I said this to anybody before, not like this, I guess, but, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of was like, Come on, I'm about to graduate, you know, like, 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 Lord, send me a sign, you know, like, let me know what's what, you know, like, I got this baby to take care of, you know what I mean? And like, I've been paying child support with, you know, fucking student loans and stuff. Like, I, what am I going to do when I get out? And um, I said, yeah, humility is a huge thing. You know, it's a huge thing. And uh, pride comes before the fall. And it's one of the things I hoped for, you know, that like, Lord, just keep it, keep it even. You know, one thing I say to my team, my manager, and my, my agent, you know, steady as she goes, just hold it steady, you know. And I say it to him, like, oh, my God, no, things are going crazy right now. <laughs> That's what they may see, you know, but I'm sitting up in Santa Fe. You know, I, was talk- I had a journey small that's a dear friend of mine. She she sent me a photo of our Lovecraft um, billboard, which is huge. And it dawned on me, I said, I'm never going to see that. I'm on this film. By the time I get out of here, what, 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 the undoing will be up there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it. You know, I, I think... One of the things, I've been blessed to have a lot of angels and mentors kind of come through my life. And one of the things, one of the things Ed said to me once was, you know, I pray for you. It's white boy Rick, so it was early on. Everything's early on. Um, but he said, uh, extraordinary career in an ordinary life, you know. And that's what, that's my hustle. That's my hope, you know. And, and nothing, you know, don't got to cheat you to beat you, you know. <laughs> Just kind of. Kind of, kind of mind my business and, and I'm about my work, you know, I'm about my family, my work, 
you know, those things. And But my work is also connected to this huge industry, you know, with all this stuff and all these, you know, blessings and, and trappings, and depending on the maturity of the artist. And um, I feel very fortunate, you know, that it all happened the way it happened. Uh, and it's all happening the way it's happened. So I read Love Car Country before, you know, I watched I watched the show and um, and I really liked trying to tease out the difference between Atticus on the page and Atticus in the show and all the things that Misha Green brought to like a book that I like and then did something, you know, even deeper with the show. Right. Take take the source material, go even deeper with her own experience in the show. My favorite episode for complicating Atticus in the show is episode six because you see Atticus from the point of view of like the stuff he did at war right and and you know this hero that you're rooting for you see him on on the wrong side of a uh, you know of a war necessarily and uh so I was just wondering like what you thought of the adaptive changes for Atticus the complications of Atticus yeah. and and your approach to that one it's funny you say episode six because that's also my favorite episode uh primarily because that's the that's the transition right between tick to Atticus right everyone knows him as tick you know, back home, you know. But that episode is when you see, okay, now you have to sound his entire name because he has had an entire experience. Yeah. Atticus, you've got to say it all. And he is fully that now. You know, he's the yin and yang of humanity. You know, he's he's done the shit. You know what I'm saying? So I love that complexity because it shows that it's that he he is making decisions to behave this way. You know what I'm saying? It is not, it is, he is not so archetypically the hero. You know what I'm saying? He has done very, 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 as he says, I've, 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 I've done bad, back in the war, I've, I've done bad, I've did, I did bad things. You know, that he says that to his uncle, he says, you're a good boy, no matter what happened, you're good, you know, love that scene. Very short scene, but love that scene. I love that day, it was a good day. No, I think, I think Misha had a way of cracking it. You know, like she explores, Atticus and all of us, but particularly for this, she explores Atticus in such a way that makes him three-dimensional, you know, and that you understand him, you know, socially. That's hard to do, you know, to have someone go, yeah, I see that and I get it. You know, like, I get that. Like, it, I don't I don't agree with it, but I get it. Yeah. You know, he's, he, he, what people have to understand and what, and what Misha helps us understand is that Atticus was a young man in war, a young man at war. And it's still a young, like, like he's experienced. And then what happens to him while he's at war, he falls in love for the first time. He loses his virginity. All these, all these epic things happen while he is in a epic, while he's in epic surroundings. And yeah. then, he, then he tries to go home, you know, the thing he's been escape, trying to escape and, and goes home. Yeah. Oh man, come on. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's quite complex. It makes him that much more human, you know, which is why, which is why I was never, I mean, every scene he's exploding. He's, he's learning something about himself. He's learning something about where he comes from. He's getting, he's receiving instruction for something. I mean, that's not in the book. You know, he, he's, he's more, um, I mean, Matt Ruff does a bu- br- brilliant job with that, but it, because the book is only um, in the imagination, right? Because you can't hear music with that, because you can't taste, I mean, you can't taste the film, but it, the senses, you're, you're only really dealing with 
one sentence when you read something, you're getting an onslaught of it. And what Misha allowed and blessed us to do and blessed me to do with advocates was to present that. Well, thank you for chatting with me. This is such an honor for me to get to talk to you. And I'm really excited for what you do next. And I'm excited. I'm for all that it's awful. I'm glad you had this year, like this explosive opportunity for you career wise, but this quiet sort of reflective space for you. Like what a gift, you know, for you in this tough year for all of us. So the worst part about this is this will be the only episode I don't listen to. You're not going to listen to yourself? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I relate. I also don't listen to myself. Thank you for for everything. And uh, I look forward to seeing all the things you do next. That does it for this week's show. You can find us all on VanityFair.com. You can find Joanna's explanation of Bridgerton, among many other great things. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best explanation of what we're going to do in Mike's continued absence goes to Richard Lawson. CGIing Christopher Plummer into it. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> from PR.